Welcome to Timely Wisdom with Drs. Silas Bradford, Sarita Wright, Brenda Wallace, Carolyn Carlisle, and I am Denise C. Burns. You can watch us live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Central Standard Time. Follow us on Facebook. Subscribe on YouTube. Today our guest is Dr. Thangma Bryant Davis, In My Right Mind. This was recorded on August 31st, 2021. But I want to pause to introduce our magnificent, brilliantly, brilliantly designed guest today. Dr. Tama Bryant Davis. She completed her doctorate in clinical psychology at Duke University and her postdoctoral training at Harvard Medical Center's Victims of Violence program. Upon graduating, she became the coordinator of the Princeton University SHARE program, which provides intervention and prevention programming to combat sexual assault, sexual harassment, and harassment based on sexual orientation. She is currently a tenured professor of psychology in the Graduate School of Education and Psychology at Pepperdine University where she directs the Culture and Trauma Research Laboratory. Her clinical and research interests center on interpersonal trauma and the social trauma of oppression. She is a past president of the Society for the Psychology of Women and a past APA representative to the United Nations. Dr. Tama also served on the APA Committee on International Relations in Psychology and the Committee on Women in Psychology. The American Psychological Association honored her for her for ex- distinguished early career contributions to psychology in the public interest in 2013. The Institute of Violence, Abuse, and Trauma honored her with their media award for the film Psychology of Human Trafficking in 2016. And the institution honored her for or with the Donald Friendly Memorial Award for Excellence in Mentoring in the Field of Trauma in 2018. The California Psychological Association honored her for a distinguished scientific achievement in psychology in 2015. Now, I, I don't know, who, you don't know who we have here today. We have a heavy hitter today. She is the editor of the APA Text Multicultural Feminist Therapy, Healing Adolescent Girls of Color to Thrive. She is one of the foundational scholars on, t- on the topic of the trauma of racism. And in 2020, she gave an invited keynote address on the topic of APA at APA. Dr. Tama has raised public awareness regarding mental health by extending the reach of psychology beyond the academy and private therapy office through community programming, and media engagement, including but not limited to headline news, national public radio, and CNN. She is an itinerant elder in the AME Church, the brilliant daughter of Bishop John and Reverend Dr. Cecilia Bryant. She is the proud mother of two brilliantly designed children, Ife and Ayo. And last but not least, 
She is a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. I want you to put in the chat. <laughs> put in the chat. Welcome, Dr. Tama Bryant Davis. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> so good to be with you all. Thank you so much for this space, this important space for sisters and for us to carve out this conversation in particular in my right mind, dealing with our mental health. As we look at all the things we are facing, it is so important that we have this sacred space. So thank you so much for having me. We are delighted that you said yes Amen. to this platform. We ask every guest um, the same question. How are you doing in these COVID streets? <laughs> in these COVID streets, I have had to be very intentional about my own wellness and setting boundaries and learning to say no. And there are so many pulls on us, especially I'll say as mental health professionals, uh, many in our community who have been resistant to seeking therapy have been so overwhelmed. They've been looking for it, for it. And so for in terms of my practice being full, the people I usually refer to are full. And so it has been a lot. And I uh, take care of myself by walking. My dad's a walker. In COVID, I took up walking. Yes. And I also love dancing. There's a great um, mother-daughter team on YouTube called Kukuwa. They do African dance aerobics. And if I can do some Kukuwa or go out and walk, uh, it helps me to, to keep my mind right. <laughs> I know that's right. And, and we all are working and striving to keep our minds right. We yeah. want to ask you a few questions and dialogue about it. That's okay. Definitely. What number first question is what were some of your ideas to increase and improve mental health awareness in the black community? Yes. So in order to uh, increase awareness about mental health, we as psychologists or other mental health professionals cannot just sit in our offices waiting for people to come. We really have to be active in community programming and community awareness and utilizing the media. Uh, and so at my church in Los Angeles, First AME Church, Los Angeles, where the pastor is Edgar Boyd, I am blessed to be able to lead our mental health ministry under our health commission. And so we regularly put on workshops about mental health to explain to our community about autism, about depression, about addiction, about grief and loss. Uh, because I think many times we are told, you know, just pray about it. And if you pray and don't feel better, then something's wrong with your faith instead of people really understanding what is clinical depression. Uh, and so the awareness raising programs, uh, utilizing the media has been really important. Television, radio, print uh, media and also social media. I put out uh, kind of nuggets or quotes related to mental health. Uh, on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And I'm happy to say that people from all walks of life will share that information and people from all different countries as well. And so uh, it is an intentional effort that some have called decolonizing psychology um, or a liberation psychology that brings psychology and mental health to the people. And that is the way we do it, but it, it also cannot be a cookie cutter approach 
where uh, we just take psychology models that were developed by white people and for white people and just try to duplicate them in our communities, but really looking at the incredible uh, black scholars, African-American and African-descended scholars who have come up with interventions and models and written books and made films. And so making those accessible to the community so that when people finally do come in, they are met with something that is culturally informed instead of something that does more harm. That that was heavy. Um, wow. How, how can you, how can the black church assist congregants in removing the stigmas regarding mental health and trauma? Yes, there are so many ways that the church can uh, be intentional about raising awareness about mental health. Uh, the first one I'll put out there is for the leadership to go get some sessions. Amen, somebody. <laughs> uh, many times you have preachers who will get in the microphone to say, you know, y'all don't need that. Or, you know, the devil and you all you need to do is pray and come get this oil. I tell people pray on your way to therapy. If you have the right therapist. You could pray at therapy and then pray when you get home. So it can go hand in hand. It is not either or. Uh, the problem has not just been silence around mental health, but actually shaming people who are pursuing their mental health and wellness. And it is outrageous uh, and it is based in ignorance. Um, I heard a preacher uh, in social media preaching a sermon, and he said, um, when you follow the devil, that's a schizophrenic mindset. And I'm sitting there like, what in the, what are you talking about? What do you, and he went on this whole sermon talking about this schizophrenic demonic mindset. So when you are ignorant and vocal, you create a lot of problems. It is better for people to be silent about what they are not informed about. Um, but to actually get help and then they can remove a lot of stigma. I was so fortunate when I was a member of Walker Temple AME Church. At the time, our pastor, my sister was Reverend Rosalind Brooks. And when she spoke publicly about uh, being a recovering addict, when she spoke publicly about how therapy helped her, it gave permission for the congregants to say, well, a pastor could go you know, maybe it's not so bad for me to go and get some help and get some resources. Uh, so I'll say starting with the leadership and then utilizing the resources that are in the church. Many times we um, are power hungry and don't like to use what we have. There are social workers in the church. There are mental health professionals in the church. And so an example that I, I will give, uh, which really blessed me, was uh, my brother, Jamal Bryant, was the first person that I ever saw do an altar call for assault survivors. And he did that altar call after he found out I was an assault survivor. I disclosed it many years later. And he did this altar call, so powerful people, and people were shocked that not only the number of people that came up, but men who came up, boys and girls who came up, of course, women who came up all different ages, all different education background, and just the altar was full and the tears are going. And you know, I said to him afterwards, that was powerful, that was necessary, thank you. And the next time you do it, if after you pray, you can have any mental health professionals in the congregation stand up and then be available for people who need to talk afterwards or who need to connect with a resource so that we can have the combination of the spiritual and the psychological. 
But that's how we break chains and to actually preach the text. There are many, many scriptures that highlight mental health and distress. So we have this false uh, teaching now that if I'm Christian, I'm going to be happy every day, right? (laughs) But when we look at the prophets, when we look at their weeping, their despair, when we read the Psalms, uh, when we think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, this is uh, distress. So this idea that if you're a Christian, you're just going to be skipping through the fields every day. It is not theologically sound and it's very damaging. Uh, so integrating mental health in our sermons, um, in our liturgy, when we have health fairs, not only focus on physical health, but also mental health. And when we are doing all these retreats, when we're not in COVID times, we do a lot of retreats, men's retreats, women's retreats. And a youth retreat, couples retreat. So at these retreats, if we can be intentional about addressing mental health, uh, it can really help to remove the stigma. And I have seen it work in wonderful ways where uh, churches, some churches have created their, their own counseling centers. Some have peer counselors. So it's members of the church who went through like a, a, a small training and some actually have licensed uh, mental health professionals. And I would say at the very least, Every pastor needs to have a referral list, a list of mental health resources in your area that are sliding scale or free or low cost. So when people come in, you do the pastoral counseling and then also give them those list of resources. And as a shameless plug, hold on, as a shameless plug, uh, if if you're a pastor and maybe you may not have all of those pastoral care, spiritual care skills, check out Timely Wisdom and we'll get you to the right therapist. Excellent. <laughs> I love it. Um, what, are, what are some successful interventions for African-Americans suffering from childhood trauma and abuse? Yes. So I really would recommend uh, individual and group therapy. I know many times uh, we have hesitation, sometimes around trust issues, and the trust issues come both from being a trauma survivor and also our trust issues as it relates to race and racism. Um, And so for those who are hesitant to go in, I would say, you know, you can check out some self-help books. A number of self-help workbooks are published by New Harbinger Press, H-A-R-B-I-N-G-R. Uh, journaling has also been really found helpful. Uh, Penna Baker has done a lot of research on trauma survivors who journal. Something about telling your story. We know that testify, right? <laughs> when I can, And so writing it, and then after you write it, if you speak it out loud, Uh, That can be very freeing because one of our challenges with trauma is uh, we don't like to think about it and we claim putting it out of your mind means you're over it. And that's not true. So when I say I don't think about it, I never think about it. um, But if I am unable to name it, to speak it, to think about it, then I am really still stuck in it. And it is often showing up in other ways. So I would encourage us all to be honest about what are the ways the traumas have affected you and how are they showing up in your relationships and your parenting and your issues with people in authority, with your control issues, uh, with your depression, with your eating, with the body shame. What are the ways in which uh, in some ways we remain stuck? And so then in individual uh, therapy and group therapy Uh, We integrate uh, using the expressive arts. And I I love the arts as a medium 
because it allows us to voice uh, some of the things that seem unspeakable. Um, I'm a sexual assault survivor, but one of the things I say that saved my relationship with my body was dance. So my whole life, I was a praise dancer. And so even when I was not speaking the story with my mouth, I was speaking it in my body. And that's what allowed me not to stay stuck. And so to uh, use our poetry, our dance, our music, let me tell you, psychologists uh, get these big grants and do research studies. And sometimes we find things that are surprising, but sometimes we find things that like our grandmothers could have told us. And so uh, and for trauma, one of the parts of the brain they have focused on is called the vagus nerve. And so they look at what are ways to kind of calm uh, the vagus nerve to keep us from being super activated. And after taking deep breath, uh, uh, another one that they have found in their, in their research is humming which just reminded me of church mothers who would say, you need to look humming and rocking and humming and rocking and swaying, that that is the way we settle our spirit, right? That's the way we minister to ourselves. And so now they have the research to prove it. <laughs> uh, but it is a, a wonderful thing to use the arts and, and what we call exposure therapy, which is also connected to narrative therapy, which is getting to a place where I can tell my story but as we tell it, the reason why it's good to have a mental health professional is sometimes the way we are telling ourselves the story is distorted and dysfunctional, right? So someone may have been telling the story for years, but in their telling of the story, they are blaming themselves for their own molestation. So it's not helpful that you tell the story a lot because you're telling the telling is off, right? So as a mental health professional, as I listen to the story, I'm listening for what are the ways in which in the mind of a child, you try to make sense of some things that are just not true, right? So I have clients who feel guilty for not being able to protect their siblings, but is it a child's responsibility to protect other children, right? Um, or feeling responsible for uh, this uncle or this uh, grandparent who took advantage of them and that they should have known better. Or I don't know why I you know, kept going to that person's house. Well, where else were you supposed to go? So uh, challenging some of those cognitive distortions, the lies that we have told ourselves and the lies that other people told us. One of the unfortunate things with child abuse is we find on average after a child discloses sexual abuse, it continues on average for another year. Because often it is, there is not an interruption. It's a, oh, um, we'll stop being fast or don't go over there or watch yourself or I can't afford a babysitter. So that's where you have to be. Um, and so we need places where we can grieve. Many of us have, uh, ha have uh, unrecognized grief. And if people in your house pretended like it was not a big deal, and I'm going to jump in deep waters and even say this around the physical abuse, that happens in our community, um, that in the church, people get up in the microphone and tell stories of child torture. And they say it with a laugh and the whole congregation laughs about, oh, they would take the switch. And then this is, you know, it's like a slave narrative and beat me in the back, a grown man with an eight-year-old child to the to the point the back is bloodied and the whole church laughing like this is a funny story. So we have some work to do as a collective uh, to heal and to recognize what is grief worthy. And, um, you know, we have this narrative around a lot of the physical violation. And I would say all of us, all of us know an adult who took things too far. 
And in most of those cases, nobody intervened because that's their child. So in our minds, that's their property, right? So if they took it too far, oh well, right? The kid should have just been on good behavior. So we have this narrative about this is what is necessary to keep keep people out of prison. Some people say, well, I'm glad they did that to me because it kept me out of jail. And to that, I say, you must not know who's incarcerated. Most of the people who are incarcerated are trauma survivors. So it's not that brutality keeps you out of prison. Uh, so we have some healing to do. Oh, Dr. Oh, Dr. Davis, you have just, um, just blessed my soul. Uh-oh, where's that feedback coming from? You have it on your phone? I don't know. You know I don't know. It's okay. Are you all right? I'm just so happy to hear that how you talk about these interventions that we can utilize in the church. And and I love the, the how the church can offer some first steps, you know, sometimes we have to take baby steps before we can trust enough to get to the therapist or get to the psychologist, the social worker. Um, and, and research has shown that the minister is where black folk go. And yes. when, when the minister is not healed, when the minister is a predator, when the minister, uh, it is does not have his own or her own mental health in check. Mm-hmm. We can do more harm. That's than right. Good. So yeah. we'll continue to share uh, how we keep these secrets, how mm-hmm. we um, think that we don't need to tell anybody in the black church and how liberating sometimes voicing the secrets mm-hmm. can be. Yeah. It is so uh, freeing because one of the things is uh, transparency is contagious. And so when you're in the presence of a truth teller, it gives you permission to tell the truth. So, you know, there has not been a time when I have done ministry that if I name being assault survivor, that I don't have people who come to me afterwards and say me too. Right. Uh, There is something about the freedom that comes where it is not my shame to carry. Right. And often, you know, when we think about why we keep secrets, it is often to protect predators or because we are ashamed. And the shame is the cognitive distortion that I actually think something bad about me because of what you did to me. Right. So that is uh, the part that we need to get free from and to know that when you have that distortion, you didn't make that up in your mind. We have a lot of those messages um, that are taught in our families and our communities and society. Um, and so we uh, that that's why to transform individuals, we have to also transform communities mm-hmm. because I can't tell you the number of people I've worked with who have gotten some sessions but now are in warfare because everybody else they deal with is in bondage. And they're like, I wish they I wish they would get some clarity because now I have to sit through Thanksgiving and I see it through new eyes. Right. Um, And so as you get free, it is going to shift the waters uh, because um, you you will have boundaries and, and liberation and voice that you did not have before. And people will have to adjust. 
Say more about this cognitive distortions and how it relates to shame. Yes. So uh, first I'll say a difference between uh, shame and guilt. So you feel guilty about something you did. You feel shame about who you are. So the guilt can be released if I uh, repent, if I apologize, and if I stop doing the behavior, because the problem is the behavior. I feel so bad because I did this thing. I am no longer going to do this thing. But for trauma survivors, we often feel bad about who we are. So if at my core, I feel broken, at my core, I feel dirty, at my core, I feel unworthy, at my core, I feel weak. That is the part that has to get liberated that can't be fixed just by a behavior. We say creating me a clean heart or the renewing of my mind. That's the deeper work of how do I heal my worthiness, right? And a lot of times we have misused uh, theology, especially for women, and taught us that our worth is in our service, which when you combine that with sexism, it teaches us to further erase ourselves, And then when you bring in culture, we have that whole song. I keep so busy serving my Jesus, keep so busy serving my Jesus. I ain't got time to die. What in the world? I'm so busy, I can't die. (laughs) Oh, my God. Go take a nap. Go take a nap. Go drink some tea. Right. Go get a massage. (laughs) You are worthy. You are worthy. It is a radical thing for a black woman in America to have permission to be still. It is a radical thing that I don't owe anybody anything. I'm not trying to prove anything. I am already enough. If I don't do another thing, God said I'm already good. That's right. And for That's me to right. believe that, that breaks the chains. Dr. 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 Vanessa Burns believes in sabbaticals. Yes. Good. And, and, and it's a good thing. You know, I'm texting her. Why she ain't answering me? She done turned off the phone. She done turned off the TV. She done turned off everything. everything. She's an example of self-care. That, that is, and that, that's something we have to do as women. We think we got to keep going, keep going, keep going to kill ourselves. Right. right. We right. kill ourselves. And, and, we, and, and then when we don't, people say we crazy. Right. So, or selfish. <laughs> Self-care is not selfish. Hallelujah. That's right. And one of the things I will say that from a liberation standpoint that we've talked more about is the importance of mutual care and community care. So one of the critiques of self-care is they will say, if you have a single mother of three um, not getting a livable wage and you say to her, you then that is not really fair, right? It is like, what are we doing as a community to help people to provide care and to have rest? That's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) You are setting some folk free today. Amen. Amen. We we as women believe or feel as if we have to do everything for everybody all the time. All the time. And and let me say, and we raise our daughters like that. The same so we want to be very careful when we say we love our sons and raise our daughters. Yeah. When we teach girls to serve and erase their own needs, their feelings, their voice, we are perpetuating this cycle. And so to be intentional about raising the voices of black girls and that their needs are important and their feelings are important and they are not here to be little mules of the world, that's an important lesson. 
But black women are, that's, our bodies have been degraded. Our minds have been degraded. That this, this is extremely transformative. Yes. To hear how black women and girls can take some time for themselves to themselves. And it yeah. is okay. Uh, someone put in the chat that I am enough. I tell my students, not just tell them to say it for themselves, but I have the other students tell them so they can hear it. Yes. You are enough. Beautiful. And if we can do that and know that we are enough, we can do the self-care. That's Karen right. Said, um, I, I do a, a nap daily. Oh, yes, oh, no. <laughs> And yes, I love that because yes. sometimes we make self-care like an exception. If I run myself in the hole, then I'm deserving of some little treat. But to make it a lifestyle, I want to organize my life in such a way that it is a life of wellness and it is a life of balance and it is a life of care. You know, Sabbath, when Jesus would disappear and go take a nap, it wasn't that everybody in the whole region was healed. Some people were still sick and Jesus was like, I'm going to go lay down. (laughs) But we have this idea we cannot stop and we run ourselves in a hole and we do ourselves a disservice. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Powerful. Um, wow. I think that um, being in this 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 season of COVID has um, damaged a lot of us in so many ways. How has COVID nineteen impacted the mental health from your perspective in our African American community? Yes. So it has been really difficult for us on multiple levels. One is we uh, face the the physical health disparity of being more likely to die and to have serious consequences. And so we have had to face more grief and not only the, the recognized grief of losing a loved one, but the unrecognized grief of the loss of time, loss of employment, loss of opportunity, loss of milestone, and a big one for us is loss of connection. We are a collectivistic culture. And so what did it mean to have to do a funeral on Zoom? What did it mean when you had to pick a certain number of people to attend and some people weren't gonna be allowed to come? What what does it mean to not have to not be able to be at the deathbed of a loved one? Uh, what does it mean to not be able to gather on Sunday morning and turn to your neighbor and give your neighbor a high five or give your neighbor a hug? So there have been uh, these losses of connection um, for uh, so many people. And we know also during COVID, along with the economic losses, while we were facing that, we were also facing increases in hate crimes based on racism. And so like we didn't even get a break from racism during a global medical (laughs) pandemic. Like you would think they would say they're already dying, leave them alone. No, we're dealing with a pandemic, yet you're still kneeling on our necks. Yes. And then when we are not then met with justice, then that is what we call state sanctioned violence. So it's one thing if like one rogue person chooses to hurt me and the whole world agrees this is wrong. It's another thing for people to hurt me, for it to be video recorded and for the government legalize, I call it the the, the uh, unlegal system, uh, for that system to declare no fault, nothing, right? The impact of that to our psyches is what we saw erupting in streets. 
It is the grief and it is the rage. And I want to say it is healthy to be outraged about outrageous things. It is healthy to be outraged. Some stuff is outrageous. So we try to demonize people's anger. It is just about what do you do with the anger? What do you do with, am I frozen? Oh no, I'm back, okay. So what do we do with our uh, anger? Because you can have constructive anger or destructive anger. Our constructive anger is it mobilizes me to fight for righteousness. It mobilizes me to run for office. It mobilizes sis to run for bishop because the situation is outrageous. And so I'm going to step in the fire. So oh. it's, it's something good about some holy boldness that preach. comes out of anger. Preach, preach, preach. <laughs> yes. called moral injury. Wait, That's wait. right. Yes. Yes. So we, we have, have faced uh, these realities. And let me say this. What does it mean when our children and our elders are disproportionately affected and then people don't want to wear a mask and then people want to talk about it like it's a civil rights issue? They want to act like they're being oppressed because they got to put a mask on their face. I mean, the the, the uh, outrageousness of it, we would call it gaslighting, right? When people try to make it seem like you're crazy for being upset and try to twist things. Um, and so having to deal with racism, economic loss, uh, medical fears and concerns at the same time, while you are lacking community engagement, um, it has been devastating. I will say on the other side of things, it has caused a lot of us to reorder our priorities. And that is the important piece when we say we don't want to go back to business as usual. Right. We will have missed the opportunity to understand some things that church needs to be different. Right. It is different uh, when you got to get people to watch online and in, a, in an hour, they're going to click over. Now, suddenly people learned how to preach brief. <laughs> how come when we were a person, nobody could preach with power briefly? <laughs> uh, but suddenly, suddenly we learned how to preach differently. We figured out how to trim down that order of worship. And uh, and, you know, because people going to log off. They're gone on to the next thing. So That's we funny. and it's a lot of our seniors. <laughs> I mean, my my uh, dad was in his late 70s, figured out how to preach on Skype, on Zoom, on Facebook Live. <laughs> we have uh, we have utilized, learned these skills. And uh, and we also have remembered what's really important. Right. Some people we took for granted. You know, we took for granted being able to gather. We took for granted saying, come meet me for lunch. We took for granted just being able to go to somebody's house without fear. Um, and so there is, I want to say, a greater appreciation for relationships and the sacredness of time that literally tomorrow is not promised. And so what do I want to do with this season of my life? Ooh, that's that's good. We have a viewer question uh, by Deborah Bates. Would you speak about the difference between wound care and system systemic care? And is she saying wound or womb? Wound. W-O, I think W-O-U-N-D, wound. Okay, yes. So um, if I am speaking of it in the same way you are, uh, the wound is often what was what I directly experienced. So in trauma, we have, uh, you can be the target of the trauma. You could be the witness of the trauma, uh, which is the uh, vicarious trauma. And then there's another level where 
even if I did not see it myself, but I am connected to the person who experienced it, then it also has an impact on me. And all of those things require um, our healing and wellness. Um, when we think about uh, post-trauma distress, one of the things that's come up for our community is that the trauma is not post. You know, it's very different for me. So usually when PTSD was developed, it was developed for veterans. So the idea was they go to war, they come back, we help them heal. It's post-trauma. They're not there anymore. But what does it mean when we are living with continuous traumatic stress? Right? That's what racism and sexism are. It's continuous. It's, it happened yesterday. It's going to happen today. It's going to happen tomorrow. Right. So how do I navigate that? It's like the di difference between if I am working with a domestic violence survivor who's no longer in it, then he or she is in a place of recovery. But if I'm working with a client who is still living with the abuser, that's a whole different game because we're trying to figure out how do you survive when you're in the belly of the beast? That's How do you survive in the fiery furnace, right? That's it. That's it. And so that uh, is a part of our labor. So we talk about resistance, not just coping strategies, but my resistance strategies. And so I don't want to just cope with oppression. I want to fight against it. And so I fight by protesting, by boycotting, by petitioning, by voting, by running for office, by demanding change at my school, at my daughter's school when they weren't going to have a Black History Month program. I went to the office and said, I'll put on the program. They made me the diversity committee. I was one person. I'm the diversity committee. <laughs> Every year, I brought in different drummers and dancers and orators to come in and tell these children who we are. Yes. So how you combat it is based on your lane. You know, know your lane and know your skill set. Uh, you can combat it from the pulpit. You can combat it at city council. Um, but we also have to combat what we call internalized oppression. Internalized oppression is when you come to believe the lies you've been told about yourself. When you believe that because you are a woman, you are less or because you are black, you are less or because you were molested, you are less. You have internalized that. And so I need to reject that script mm -hmm. and define myself for myself to know trauma affects me, but it does not define me. Wow. I think that your, your, your statement about internalizing doesn't define uh, is a natural segue um, into the question that I have for you. Um, uh, my sister, Dr. Wallace, uh, mentioned about uh, me taking sabbaticals or knowing, I think it's more about me understanding when I, I need to step away from my own mental um, well-being. And, and, I, and I've done that, um, especially during this summer, as you've already mentioned, you know, that there was no mental break for us during this pandemic. You know, we constantly were aware of um, these traumas that were, we, we, we were forced to visualize consistently. And so um, taking a break from social media and TV and all those things have occurred for me, especially in the summer months after I've been traumatized um, by number 45 and so many other things uh, that had occurred. And unfortunately, I went on Facebook um, today a couple of hours and, and I'm, I'm still reeling um, from something that I saw posted um, that had a, a scriptural reference to it. And um, from uh, someone that I know who is a pastor and seeing the people that responded to it. And so it calls me to, to I guess, uh, get to this place of this question. How does utilizing the Bible to demonize women 
affect their mental health and spiritual walk? Yes, thank you so much for the question. And we have to address this directly, the realities of uh, religious abuse. You know, we are aware of physical abuse and sexual abuse, community abuse, domestic violence, but the ways in which uh, the Bible and church has mm-hmm. done harm. We often call it church hurt. And usually people will recognize it as, you know, if you have a pastor who's a, a pedophile or um, a sexual harasser, these kinds of things. But we want to also look at the emotional religious abuse of what has been the impact of what you were taught from the pulpit about the status and spirit of women. Mm-hmm. And I have been in many churches that are silent about women or only use women in the Bible as examples of what not to do. And so that kind of preaching and teaching can give women and girls the idea that they are spiritually inferior. Uh, It goes against the very idea that we are made in the likeness and image of God. And it is so stressful for some people to see God uh, depicted as a black woman. They'll say, who who is that? That's God. (laughs) That's God. I am in the likeness and the image of God. To see me is to see God, right? To to see Keisha and Lamia, that is to see God. And how many people would miss the Messiah's return if the Messiah came back as a black girl from Baltimore? How many people would miss it? And so we get uh, really caught up in these ideas um, around our inferiority. Here it is. It not only does harm to women and girls, it does harm to men because then they do not how to function in the presence of strong women. Mm. When they see women operating in spiritual gifts, they get so upset and so frustrated that this must not be of God because it makes me feel weak. As opposed to when I am secure in who God is, I am excited to see God move in whatever vessel God chooses to move in. And so it has created a confusion and insecurity and tension in the church, which let me say is primarily comprised of women who are most of the people who attend women, who are most of the givers, women, who are most of the leaders, men. And then they are teaching that somehow we are uh, less or problematic or uh, when when the reality is in our community, especially who has been the one teaching children to pray, who has been the one (laughs) making sure baby got there to get baptized, who has been the one uh, speaking the reality, speaking faith and prophesying in in the house and and in the schoolyard and and didn't need a robe and didn't need a title, but have been doing the work, right? That is who we are. That is what we've done. So so to put the labor on us and then demonize us for doing the labor uh, is really problematic. And it speaks to uh, insecurity and it it speaks to poor teaching. Mm -hmm. And so what has uh, resulted is uh, I know a lot of uh, women in some denominations who never accepted their call to preach. Uh, One of the wonderful sisters I love in ministry talked about growing up in a church where women were not allowed to preach. And as a teenager, she received the call to preach 
and she told her father, he took her before the elders. They told her that was not possible. And at that point as a teenager, she started grinding her teeth. Mm. Unspoken Mm. words, unspoken Mm. words. Mm. She lived a life that I won't even get into her testimony, but it wasn't until her thirties that she finally preached her first sermon and got free. So how many years have we lost because we were told that's not possible for you? Mm, 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 mm. Mm. Say say more. Say more. So we get to the reality that our spiritual gifts are for the upbuilding of the entire kingdom. So if half of the congregation is sitting on their gifts. Right. You have silenced prophets in your midst. Silenced evangelists in your midst, sitting mm. on their gifts, told that all they can do is run the nursery and do the bake sale and do a fashion show. You got mm. prophets running fashion shows. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Are you kidding me? You know, you got people who's supposed to be bishops running a nursery and they don't even like kids. <laughs> oh, we got to get free so people can operate in their assignment. So they can operate in their assignment and utilize the gifts that God gave them. Jesus. <laughs> that freedom. Was- freedom. Sing that. Freedom. We free today. today. We freedom. That's some freedom here today. Hallelujah. The men um, silencing the women, but the women per- perpetuate yes. the behavior. That's right. I I, uh, I don't know if I can tell this funny story. I won't name the church, <laughs> but uh, a woman in ministry, a woman who's a pastor, uh, told me about she had just become assigned to this church and they were having like, you know, that initial service and having the reception afterwards. And how after service, one of the women who was working in the kitchen came and brought the new pastor their uh, lunch plate, their after service plate, and it was on a, a plastic plate. And how this other sister had to go off and say, you would have never bought any of the men pastors we have had. You would have never. You want to look, give them China. You want to give them the finest of the fine. But this sister girl, it's like, whatever. What You know, you can have whatever. And so the ways in which we are told to honor men and dishonor each other, to dishonor our own reflection, it is uh, sinful. Yeah. 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 What a wonderful close. What what a wonderful way to end. Yes, Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, Dr. Uh, Brian Davis. um, Thank you for the invitation. I've enjoyed the conversation. And and our understanding is that you are um, you're offering you for yourself. Yes, I am running for president elect of the American Psychological Association. If you if you are a psychologist or you know one, please tell them to vote for me. The ballots go out in September. Thank you. We'll be telling my therapist who's a psychologist. Oh, please do. Please. And let me say, when I announced on Twitter, I was running a sister from Zimbabwe (gasps) tweeted back. My prayers have already voted for you. Hallelujah. <laughs> We're going to use that. Hallelujah. Come on, Zimbabwe. <laughs> yes, hallelujah. Um, Dr. Dr. Tamer, wait, can you um, tell us your cash app? Oh, wow, certainly. It's uh, okay. Tamer Simone, T H E M A S I. Wait a minute. Dollar sign. Say it again. 
Tama, my first name, T-H-E-M-A, Simone. That's my middle name after Nina Simone. Yes, ma'am. S-I-M-O-N-E. This is, this is rich. Um, and people pay for this type of therapy. Yeah. <laughs> um, of course, we can't pay you for what the Lord has done through you today, but this is amazing. And we thank God for you. We thank God for you saying yes, because we know your schedule. Thank you for fitting us in today. We love I'm you. glad to be here. Thank you Thank so you. very much for being with us on today. Thank you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May heaven smile upon you and give you peace. May the heavens be opened and may your camp be enlarged. In every place that our foot treads, God has already given it to us. Yes. Give us a few minutes backstage, Dr. Tamer. All right. Thank you.